You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the true story of a 10-year-old Salem, Oregon girl who swallowed an estimated 200 rocks. Then you'll learn about a man who in 1911, he buried a fortune in gold and then recorded its location on a fragile phonograph record. That would end up being a costly mistake. Plus, you'll hear about a colorblind plumber who installed mismatched fixtures in various homeowners' bathrooms. Anyone for a Venetian pink sink with a green toilet and a blue bathtub? Anyway, all that plus additional true stories and the history of the Big Mac hamburger. That's all coming up next on today's Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless information. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. And if you're new to the podcast, I just want to explain that the basic format is that I record one full-length story, and then I alternate that with an episode of mini or short stories, and I call that a retrocast. These are the stories that simply couldn't be developed into a full-length episode. So let's dive right into our first story. On April 3rd of 1911, it was reported that prior to his death five years earlier, Hudson Burton recorded a message on a phonograph record and he entrusted it to his lawyer for safekeeping. In his will, Burton revealed that he had buried a large sum of gold and he provided the exact location on that record, but it was not to be played until five years after his death. So, on the designated day, Burton's heirs gathered at the home of his son, that's Luke Burton, and they eagerly anticipated the revelation of the location of the buried treasure. The lawyer arrived with the record which he had carefully preserved, but in a moment of carelessness he tripped over a footstool and he broke the precious record just as he entered the room where everyone was waiting. As you can imagine, they were furious at the mishap and they would never ever learn the location of that buried treasure. Now, despite the disappointment of Burton's heirs, the legend of the buried treasure still persists to this day. Believe it or not, it still goes undiscovered, if there ever was one in the first place. It is rumored that he had hidden the cash on his farm, which was located about two miles north of State 12 in the southeastern corner of Berrien County in Michigan. So if you have nothing to do, head on up there and see if you can find this treasure. Next, on June 18th of 1936, the Daily Oklahoman published the details of a proposal for boosting civic pride in Oklahoma City, and it had been put forth by Roscoe E. Dixon, 
and it involves a daily mass handshaking event. The plan suggests that at an unspecified time every day, all of the city's fire sirens would sound at once, and that would prompt citizens to stop what they're doing, turn to the nearest person, and then shake their hand enthusiastically while proclaiming, quote, we're living in the finest city in the United States. Well, despite his simplicity, Dixon believed that his plan would work wonders for the city. However, it was felt that some citizens may not be so receptive to the idea. Now, they did give some examples of how Dixon's plan would work. Let's suppose a truck driver gets into an altercation with a taxi driver. You big mug, why don't you watch where you're going? The cab driver would then reply, Listen, Laos, I'm going to punch you one, you dirty lug. And then the siren goes off. We're living in the finest city in the United States. Let's face it, would they still keep arguing after that? Hmm. Or let's suppose a young boy comes home with ripped pants, no shirt, a black eye, and mud on his face. His mother is furious. Quote, Young man, I've got something to say to you. And just as she's about to yell at him, the local fire alarm sounds. She quickly changes her tone. We're living in the finest city in the United States. Boy, that kid got away lucky, didn't he? Now, if the plan had been implemented, there was the possibility that some citizens may not have anyone to shake hands with. Well, in that case, the rules would have been modified to allow for monologues. However, that was going to work. Now, Dixon worked for a company called G.A. Nichols, and they sold bungalow lots in Nichols Hills. But he was also a professional civic booster, and he gave lectures about the city's virtues every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday at what was then a new lecture hall in Nichols Hills. I don't know about you, but I think that was a great idea, and I'm surprised it didn't catch on. We really should bring it back. But instead of doing it just in Oklahoma City, we should do it worldwide. Then, every day at a chosen time, the sirens would go off in towns and cities all around the globe. And then we would all stop what we're doing and say, we're living on the finest planet in the entire universe. And everything would be just great after that. Don't you agree? And the last story that I have for this segment is this one. A 10-year-old girl from Salem, Oregon, had become the talk of Salem Memorial Hospital after doctors discovered she had been secretly swallowing rocks for at least six months. Connie Holland started spitting up pebbles on Thursday night, July 24th of 1958, and she was then taken to the hospital, where x-rays revealed that her stomach and intestines, they revealed that her intestines were lined with over 200 smooth little rocks. Quote, They've never seen anything like it at the hospital, said Connie's mother, Mrs. Patrick Holland. Fortunately, surgery wasn't necessary. Around four dozen of the rocks were removed using a stomach pump and other tools, and the doctors planned to take out the rest gradually. They never quite explained how they do that. Anyway, despite her unusual condition, hospital attendants said that Connie was in, quote, fine shape, and according to her mother, quote, having a wonderful time, everyone making such a fuss over her. However, doctors also discovered that Connie had a minor case of pneumonia, and that may have actually saved her life. As a mother explained, quote, If she hadn't become nauseated Thursday, apparently from the pneumonia, and been taken to the hospital, doctors said the rocks may have punctured her intestines. 
Well, Connie was released from the hospital and returned to their 1840 Ferry Street Southeast home on Sunday, July 27th of 1958. As you'd expect, her parents were relieved that the doctors were able to remove most of the stones from her alimentary canal, and they hoped the remainder would be eliminated naturally, if you know what that means. Mrs. Holland explained that she had received permission to take Connie home from the hospital because she believed that her daughter would be more comfortable there in the hot weather they were experiencing at the time. However, Connie was scheduled to report for further x-rays one week later. Connie did pose for a picture in the July 28, 1958 edition of the Statesman Journal, and it shows her pretending to eat a bowl of crushed rock, you know, like cereal. But Connie claimed she had sworn off eating rocks. The blonde-haired girl quickly added that she had lost all interest in them and she wouldn't do it again. But when asked why she ate the rocks, Connie responded, quote, I don't know why I ate those rocks. At the time, they tasted really good. She explained that she sucked on the stones for a while before she swallowed them. According to her mother, some individuals jokingly referred to Connie as Gravel Gertie. Then, on August 8th, Connie's reported to be doing well, and she received a box of agates from a Detroit collector named Chick Miller. But they weren't real. Instead, Miller sent Connie a box of candy rocks that were far easier to digest. You see, Miller was an amateur agate collector and a Detroit orchestra leader, and when he read about Connie's rock-swallowing experience, he wanted to send her a replacement for her lost collection. So in his letter to her, Miller wrote, quote, I thought she might rather have a mouthful of our Michigan agates in preference to some of Oregon's common gravel variety. But he didn't have Connie's address, so Miller sent the box to the care of the chief of police in Salem, and he forwarded the box onto her. Connie said she would keep the candy rocks as a reminder of her experience. She wasn't going to do that again. So here's a question for you. As you probably know, McDonald's is world famous for their Big Mac hamburgers. So in what year was the Big Mac first introduced in their restaurants? Do you have any clue? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of the podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now we're up to what I like to call footnotes to history. And these are just short articles that appeared in newspapers long ago, and they really don't need any further research, so I'm just going to read them word for word. And the first story is from the June 6, 1927 issue of the Racine Journal News, and this appeared on page 4. 
The headline reads, Food is literally shot from cannons. The subheading is, Quaker Oats Company shows Racinians' unique way of preparing grains. Shot from guns is the descriptive term used by the Quaker Oats Company in bringing to the attention of the consumers of breakfast foods the manner in which puff wheat and puff rice are prepared for the table. The term is familiar to thousands of people and is accepted by them as the most ingenious explanation that can be made. All of the advertisements carry that answer to how the popular food products are prepared, and the company has contrived an even more ingenious stunt in its publicity program. Hundreds of Racine people stopped in their travels the other day to observe the operation of a contrivance which really shot the grains from a gun. It was mounted on a beautiful glittering yellow motor conveyance. The small cannon was of brass, and as the vehicle proceeded through the streets, there was shot from the gun the grains that go to make up these nationally advertised and universally known breakfast foods. The cars traveled through many states so far, and it proceeded northwest through other parts of Wisconsin after leaving the city. Racine was one of the chief cities of the Midwest which was selected on the tour of places to be visited. Now, after reading this article, I couldn't help but think about a demo that I did with my students over the years. Uh, basically, I used what was called a Van de Graaff generator. It's this giant ball that sits on a stand. And this, I, the only way I can describe this is a giant rubber band inside. And that rubbing creates a charged sphere. Well, forgetting about the technical parts, most people know that it makes your hair stand up. Have you ever seen those demos? Anyway, I used to take a container of Rice Krispies and put it on top of the generator, turn it on, and all the uh, Rice Krispies would go shooting out. Kids loved it, but I have to tell you, it was the biggest mess to clean up. This next story is from the October 1st, 1935 publication of the Ogden Standard Examiner and appeared on page 7. Headline reads, Missing Arm to be Buried Again, Deep. Alturas, California, October 1st, United Press. Next time Stanislaw Joelewski buries his arm, he's going to go far out into the desert and dig a great big hole. Joelewski lost his arm in an accident several days ago. He buried the severed member in the city dump. Two Indians found it and took it to Sheriff John Sharp. After investigating possibilities of a murder, Sharp restored the arm to Joelewski. Restored his arm? Well, I don't know. I think it'd be better wording to say he gave it back to him. And our third footnote is from March 26th of 1943. This appeared on page 22 of the Chicago Tribune. The headline reads, Males in Skirts Lose Protests Against Slacks. North Park College male students who said they were tired of seeing co-eds running around in overall slacks and man shirts yesterday arrived at the college, 3225 Foster Avenue, wearing skirts. But the stunt backfired. Instead of being irate, the co-eds welcomed the protesting skirted brigade with everything from a giggle to a roar. And instead of the girls giving up slacks, it was the college that took action. Dean of students Peter Person ordered the men's students to get back into trousers. Those who had not brought trousers with them and were caught with nothing to wear but skirts were sent home to change. Dean Person said disciplinary action would be taken against the protesting males. 
The girls not only continued to wear their slacks, but pulled out their shirt tails, letting them fly defiantly in the breeze. Next up, we have a story of a duck, and this appeared in the December 20th, 1954 issue of the Longview Daily News on page 2. The headline reads, Duck has mental problem, thinks he's a bow-wow. Seattle, United Press. Now you take George Dugan. It's a mental problem with George. He looks like a duck, the mallard variety, and only by his feathers would other mallards know him. Smokey, the Dugan dog, is willing to agree that George is a dog too, most of the time. Only at mealtime does George look like a duck to Smokey. Mrs. Dugan said they fight like mad at mealtime. Quote, George likes meat and he tries to eat out of Smokey's dish. It leads to trouble, Mrs. Dugan said. George likes spaghetti, but it sometimes throws him. Quote, he gets it all wound around his bill and goes mad, Mrs. Dugan says. But when the gastronomic battle is not raging, Smokey and George, feathers and fur, roam the neighborhood in jolly companionship, barking and quacking at cats and even chasing cars. That, too, leads to misgivings on the part of drivers. Quote, Drivers are a little perplexed, Mrs. Dugan says. They've almost sheared off the mailboxes and climbed the bank when they see a big, fat mallard waddling after them. And the last footnote for today, uh, this one appeared on May 12, 1957 in Los Angeles Times on page 13. The headline reads, Colorblind Plumber Gums Up the Works. Oroville, California, May 11th, Associated Press. And the story begins... Four young couples bought new houses. Each wife specified a different pastel color scheme for her bathroom. Blue, pink, sand, green. Plumbing contractor Mikovich assigned a subcontract to install the fixtures. Now four irate housewives are demanding to know why a blue bathtub was installed with a green wash basin, etc. Quote, We're having to pull out the fixtures and reshuffle them, Kovich said today. The plumber who installed them was colorblind. Now, I live in a house that's over 100 years old, and it was last remodeled in the 50s, about 1954, 55, somewhere in there. And we have a Venetian pink bathroom downstairs. Not only the tub, the, you know, the toilet, and the sink, but the tiles on the wall. They're also Venetian pink. I should also point out they're not ceramic. They're plastic. I have to admit, it's kind of a step back in time. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So early in the podcast, I'd asked you about the Big Mac, you know, McDonald's signature hamburger. So did you have any ideas to when it was first introduced? Well, the story actually begins with another classic burger. You see, in August of 1936, Bob Wyan opened a restaurant named Bob's Pantry in Glendale, California. The following February, a local group of big band musicians, all of whom were regulars to the restaurant, well, they stopped in to grab a bite. And while ordering the bass player that Stewie Strange, he blurted out, how about something different, something special? 
So Bob decided to have some fun with the idea and he created a multi-layered burger and he jokingly designed it to, quote, look ridiculous like a leaning tower. His spur-of-the-moment concoction quickly caught on and Bob decided to give it a catchy name. He called it Bob's Big Boy. And with the success of his first location, Bob was able to open additional Bob Big Boy restaurants throughout the state. But unfortunately, World War II brought his expansion plans to a halt. Then, shortly after the war ended, a Cincinnati fast food restaurateur named Dave Fish was out in California, and he just happened to stop into one of Bob's restaurants. Fish was immediately impressed by the Big Boy hamburger, and he made a sweetheart of a deal with Dave. Frisch was able to license the big boy name for 25 years. And you're going to love the next part. The cost, $1 per year. Adjusted for inflation, that's just $12.62 today. Now you're probably thinking Bob made a really bad decision here, but that wasn't his reason for making the deal. His sole interest was in protecting the big boy name outside of California. He really wasn't that concerned about franchise fees back then. And by licensing the big boy name exclusively to Frisch for use in four states, other imitators would be unable to use it. The net result was that Frisch became the first big boy franchisee. Now, a similar scenario would play out for the second big boy franchise. This time, a guy named Larry Hatch, he was a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania restaurant supervisor, he'd been driving through Cincinnati and he made a stop at a Frisch big boy drive-in operation and he also was impressed by the Big Boy Burger. So Hatch, along with his business partner Bill Peters, they contacted Bill Wyan in California, and they secured the second Big Boy franchise. And the terms were identical. $1 per year for 25 years. And on June 5th of 1949, the two men would open the Eaton Park Big Boy in the Overbrook neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And this is where McDonald's enters the picture. You see, Uniontown, Pennsylvania native Jim Delegati, he purchased his first McDonald's franchise in 1955 for $1,500. That's $16,850 today. And he would go on to operate 47 additional locations in Pennsylvania throughout his lifetime. As a little side note, he passed away on November 28th of 2016 at 98 years of age which I guess just means you can just keep eating McDonald's fries and you'll still live a long life. Anyway, by the mid-1960s, Jim was having some problems with the competition. You see, the Eaton Park restaurants, they were offering those popular oversized big boy burgers, while McDonald's menu, well, it was limited to those simple burgers, fries, and shakes. Not really very competitive. So Jim approached the bigwigs at McDonald's with the idea of introducing a bigger burger. And they initially balked at the idea. And that's because their existing offerings were selling well. But eventually they gave Jim the go-ahead. And what he came up with was similar to the big boy, although Jim did add tomatoes, pickles, and onions to his creation. And two names were being thrown around at corporate headquarters for this new burger. The first was the aristocrat, but they were leaning more toward naming it the Blue Ribbon Burger, but they really felt that neither were catchy enough. Then, as one of the advertising executives was entering a board meeting, he just happened to ask his secretary, that's 21-year-old Esther Glixine Rose, if she had any ideas. And she offered up the name Big Mac. Believe it or not, everyone just laughed. Yet they ran with it, and they made a fortune. 
I mean, after all, the Big Mac is the best-selling hamburger in the world, but for years they refused to acknowledge her contribution. It wouldn't be until 1985, that's the 30th anniversary of the chain, that the company awarded Esther with a plaque for her contribution. That's all she got. Other than her salary, she never received a single penny of compensation for naming the product. And this finally brings us to the answer to today's question of the day. The first Big Mac was sold on April 22nd of 1967. That's the answer, 1967. It was sold at the McDonald's in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, and that lies about 46 miles or 74 kilometers southeast of Pittsburgh. The original selling price of the Big Mac was 45 cents, which is about $4.05 today. Of course, it was a runaway hit, so the Big Mac was added to the menu of all U.S. McDonald's restaurants the following year. Now, if you're curious, there is a map at McCheapest.com, McCheapest.com, and it shows the current price of the Big Mac at every single McDonald's in the United States. According to the map, and the data is a few weeks old, the cheapest Big Mac can be found for $3.49 in Stigler, Oklahoma. Just go to the McDonald's on Main Street there, and you can get the cheapest Big Mac. On the other hand, if you want the most expensive Big Mac, that is selling for $8.09 at 240 West Road in Lee, Massachusetts. I happen to know this place very well because it's only about 45 minutes from my house. It just happens to be a rest stop on the Massachusetts Turnpike. And I have to tell you, I've eaten at that restaurant many times. And of course, it's a captive audience, so the prices are very, very high. And I just drive a little further and you can get off the Lee Lennox exit and food is a lot cheaper as soon as you get off the highway. Of course, if you're old enough to remember, back in 1974, McDonald's launched a popular advertising jingle listing the ingredients in the Big Mac. I think I can still recite them to this day. Two all beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. See, I did it. Anyway, I even had a t-shirt when I was a kid with that slogan on it. And of course, if you're too young to remember it, here's how it went. McDonald's Big Mac. It's more than just another hamburger. There are two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions on a sesame seed bun. Seven great ingredients working together to make one great taste. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, cheese, lettuce, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Get the idea? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. It's your McDonald's Big Mac. You've got to taste it to believe it, you know what I mean? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Two all-beef patties... Let me say a few words about McDonald's Big Mac. It's a, it's, it's... Two whole beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Two whole... Well, what, what was that word again? Two whole beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. That is cheese, cheese, pickles, onions, lettuce, uh, cheese, pickles, oh, what am I saying? You deserve a break today at McDonald's. Where your dollar gets a break every day. That's actually the audio from two different commercials that were broadcast on TV in 1974. Now, I just remember being in middle school and us having contests, all the kids having contests as to who could say the phrase and who could say it the fastest without making an error. Now, if you're curious, the ingredients phrasing first appeared as a header for print ads, and they were intended for college newspapers. But then the words were set to music, and it was sung by Mark Vieja. He wrote it and sang it. The first one of those commercials, they only ran for a year and a half, although it seems like they're around forever. They went off the air in 1976, but its popularity remained long beyond its TV life.
Well, I hope you enjoyed the 16th installment of the Retrocast. I should tell you I ran into a couple of really big problems while putting this episode together. And while it's very late in the winter here, we were hit by a big snowstorm, the biggest one of the season. And it was the heavy, wet type that brings down lots of branches and power lines. And that's exactly what it did. While my wife and I were watching TV the other night, the internet went down and it was gone for 24 hours. You don't realize how dependent you are on it. But it also meant that I couldn't complete all the research that I needed to do to complete this episode. And when they finally repaired that, I was furiously working to complete all the pieces of this retrocast. And while I usually record the segments in order from beginning to end, for some reason I opted to start with the history of the Big Mac. And I was about three quarters of the way through recording that when all of a sudden my computer, it just went dark. That's light outside and I had to look around and I realized the power went out in the house. So I contacted the electric company and they estimated it be 36 hours before the power was restored. So what I did this morning is I went to our local McDonald's, not to get a Big Mac, but to have breakfast, but mostly so I could recharge my phone and my laptop. My plan was to come back home, uh, pull out my old USB microphone that I used years ago, plug it into the laptop and record this episode. But just as I was getting ready to start, I heard a beeping noise outside. So I ran to the front window And I looked out and it was a bucket truck from the electric company. It was backing up along the road. So I went outside and I watched the repairman. He lifted himself up near the transformer on the pole. And within a minute, the power was right back on. I don't know what he did. I think he just flipped the switch. It must have been some sort of safety that he had to reset. But it was back in like 45 seconds to a minute. And here we are. Anyway, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook and also check out my website. That's uselessinformation.org. I've had that since 1994. There's a lot of good content there. I'll also remind you that the Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Network, and you can discover more great podcasts just like this one at airwavemedia.com. Anyway, I'll be back shortly with a full-length episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.